Welcome to Noise in Brief, PR Week UK's fortnightly podcast series, where we discuss the biggest industry news stories from the past week in a bite-sized format. I'm John Harrington, the editor of PR Week UK, and I'm joined today by PR Week reporters Evie Barrett and Eliza Radu. Hello. Hello. Now, the post office horizon IT scandal has dominated domestic news since the story was thrust into the spotlight following a four-part ITV drama about it, Mr Bates versus the Post Office, was broadcast earlier this month. For those who haven't been following, over several years there were prosecutions and wrongful convictions of hundreds of sub-postmasters arising from the use of a defective Fujitsu software system called Horizon by the Post Office. The drama depicted a David versus Goliath struggle by sub-postmasters against the Post Office and their eventual victory in a landmark court case. Since the broadcast, Paula Venels, former CEO of the post office, said she would return the CBE she was awarded in the 2019 New Year's Honours. Rishi Sunak, uh, with one eye on the election, no doubt, has announced new legislation will be brought in to make sure the victims are swiftly exonerated and compensated. This has been a major comms victory for ITV and for Alan Bates, the star of the programme. But how do we think the scandal has been handled from a comms perspective by, I guess, both the post office and Fujitsu, as well as the various politicians who've been implicated in this? Who's got a view on, on that? From what we've seen, it does feel a bit like the responses from the post office and Fujitsu have been lacking in empathy. They're sort of just acknowledging that they've apologised in the past. And from the post office's side, a lot of the blame seems to be sort of pushed towards the horizon system being quite complicated to understand. It's kind of hard to see anyone taking much accountability at the moment. That said, the narrative might be changing. At the time of recording this, um, Fujitsu executive Paul Patterson has just told MPs this morning that he believes his company has a moral obligation to contribute to the compensation scheme for victims of the post office scandal and he apologised for his company's role in what he called an appalling miscarriage of justice. So that feels like a step in the right direction, but action is going to be more important than what they say at the end of the day. I completely agree with you about the importance of empathy in like crisis management. When an incident affects such a large number of people, the words used to communicate the situation become so crucial. I think the fact that the situation has existed for like two decades and there's no steps were ever taken despite the amount of information people had is quite horrific. I think organisations can recover from crises if... They act with some sincerity and are transparent. It all kind of boils down to authenticity again. I think no one should really downplay the severity of this situation because it's destroyed so many people's lives. Okay, look, looking at sort of wider issues, I mean, obviously this this is an issue that's been reported by the press for many years. You know, Panorama, Private Eye, Computer Weekly sort of famously written a lot about this topic. Why do you think it's blown up in the way it has? And what, what do you think sort of wider lessons there are on this? I think, obviously, no one's doubting the impact that the drama has had on all of this. It shows that corporate issues like these won't just go away, no matter how hard a crisis comms team might try to cover these things up and hope they blow over with time. There's obviously public appetite for issues like these to be exposed with how many viewers the the TV series has had. And it shows that dramatisation is an ideal way to help people understand what really happened and build solidarity from a human perspective. I'd say it feels like a turning point because this Horizon scandal isn't glamorous at all. It's a far cry from the scandalous true crime series that we're used to. So if this has managed to cause that much of a stir, TV production companies are obviously going to broaden their view on what crises they can make a TV series out of next. So I think it's going to be something that crisis comms teams are going to have to keep in mind going forward. Yeah, what do you think, Eliza? 
Uh, like Evie said, there's a growing like desire for issues like these to be brought into light. I think it's quite important to showcase systematic failures through the perspective of those who have suffered. I think this case hasn't been sensationalised nor glamorised. Instead, it feels like a new approach to capturing people's attention. It's really hard to like hide your mistakes, especially in these times. But I think comms professionals need to exercise more caution than ever before because people are always watching. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, we had an interesting comment piece in PR Week from Andrew McDougall of Trafalgar Strategy, who formerly worked in the Prime Minister's office. Um, one quote from it that stood out, television brings stories to life in a way that print media simply can't. I think there's been some really interesting discussion around this in, in, in recent days. My view is it's sort of become a colossal story when people could sort of see the injustice and react on an emotional level with anger about how the system seems to be working against them. And I think that that was the emotional tug. The, the post office and 40 IT were just kind of the backdrop, really, to what was, as I say, a sort of David and Goliath battle and one where people were sort of visibly, visibly angry at the injustice that's um, that's occurred to these people who, you know, were in many ways sort of pillars of the community. And I agree with you. I wonder if this will spur more TV executives to take on real stories of injustice. You know, I think about things like, you know, Grenfell, housing more generally, welfare. I think crisis comms professionals should be on red alert about these things and make sure they and their organisations do the right thing in the first place and certainly be be prepared because this seems like the ultimate communications channel if you have the, the brilliant journalism that's gone into this sort of married with a real sort of emotional tug of uh, a fantastic drama with some great actors. It's a real kind of powerful communications tool, I would say. I mean, another thing I'd say is I was, I was listening to uh, Pod Save the UK podcast and it had James Hardy there, who's former editor of The Times. He said that it's it's often been harder for these kind of stories to have that real cut through because they're about systemic problems, not obvious individual failings, because this is one of the arguments about why it's taken this long for it to be quite as big a topic as it is, although admittedly it has been a big topic and there's an inquiry that's, that's ongoing and launched a while ago. I mean, if you compare it to the Michelle Moan story, where the narrative, which they will no doubt you know, contest, is one of individual greed, 
this seems like a very complicated issue, a mix of incompetence, arrogance, and sort of failings of a number of different private companies and governments, um, ministers, and and so on. So it's kind of, it's less straightforward, but it really feels like the, the drama has found a way to sort of bring this to life with real stories. And also, Hardy makes the point that it became a compelling story because it found a hero. You know, Alan Bates has really kind of captured the public's imagination. So there's a real focal point for the communication strategy, whereas I don't think there was before. And you think about successful campaigns of recent years. I mean, Marcus Rashford is an obvious one. You know, there's a focal point there of an individual. Admittedly, he was an individual who was very famous. But, you know, you could look at others, maybe Fergal Sharkey with, with sort of water campaigning, and we could name several others. But it feels like that has helped. It's helped to sort of humanise it, definitely. So want to watch any more reflections on on this? I, yeah, like you were saying, I think it's interesting how Hardy said there doesn't necessarily need to be a strong villain if there is a strong hero. I think a lot of companies kind of assume if there's not a single person to put all this blame on, then people's anger will wear off if there's not this this person to direct it at. But if you've got a person on the other side who you're empathising with, that can be just as strong. I also think the sheer number of people affected by this crisis is something that's also garnered a lot of people's attention. I think last time I checked, it was 900 postmasters that were affected. And with a number that large, it's really hard to just miss out and for it to go unnoticed. You think of the number of communities as well. You know, you think if you live in a village in uh, the Midlands and suddenly, oh yeah, no, my post postmaster was implicated in this. And then somewhere else 100 miles away and somewhere else 200 miles away. And suddenly you've got this sort of groundswell of interest in this story. And it's not a story about elites somewhere doing something horrendous. Well, I mean, arguably it is in terms of certain certain sides of it, but it's it's about people in the community being hit by what looks like the establishment stitching them up. Whether that's entirely the case, we'll see when the inquiry reports. But it certainly ticks a lot of boxes in terms of dramatic narrative and, and makes a massive communications challenge. Moving on, Edelman has released its regular trust barometer to coincide with the World Economic Forum in Davos. The barometer surveyed more than 32,000 people in 28 countries. It found growing unease and mistrust among many people towards innovation. Respondents by two-thirds margin said innovation is being poorly managed. The research also found innovation has become politicised, especially in Western democracies, where right-leaning people are far more likely than those on the left to resist it. More positively, Edelman said it's a big opportunity for businesses to remedy the problem with the help of their comms advisors, obviously. Some of the advice includes making sure the science is accessible to people, that companies should pace themselves relative to society's ability to process change and make sure governments and regulators are up to speed. So, Question, why is there this mistrust of innovation, what do you think, and, and what can comms do to help? I think businesses need to strive to be more inclusive and communicate effectively with both the general public and informed elites. What I found most interesting in the research was there's less trust across institution among those with lower income. I think sometimes the use of like technical jargon can create a sense of alienation and lead to some misunderstandings. I think the accessibility around language is also really crucial in gaining trust. I feel like when people feel like they have control over how innovation affects them, they're more likely to embrace that rather than resist. Evie, what do, what do you think? 
What strikes me is that we're in an age of so much information, people are a lot more aware of the innovation that's happening around them and how it could impact them, especially in terms of technological developments, they're a lot more tangible. I was thinking back to, obviously, I wasn't really aware of it, but when the internet was first becoming a thing, obviously, that's such a big development. It made me wonder why people were maybe more concerned about AI now than they were about the internet back in the day. And I think it's because you hear so much more about AI and how it might be used, how it might take over your jobs, whereas the internet was just kind of this abstract thing which might come into our lives but people couldn't fully digest how it was going to have an impact in theory you'd think people would be more comfortable with things now if they have all this information and it's easily accessible but it doesn't necessarily mean that we're consuming the correct facts and coming to sensible conclusions people are going to do their own research on a lot of things I think and not know what to believe and what not to believe so I think comms can help combat hysteria and guide people in the right direction with things like AI. A lot of this mistrust is about mistrust of elites and mistrust of institutions generally. I mean, this is a, it feels like a wider point to me that, you know, for many years there has been this sort of feeling stoked up a lot by sort of populists that basically the institutions are out to get you, the big companies are out to get you, they're only there to take things from you, they've got malevolent aims and they should be something that we're, we're all suspicious of. Um, I think this is a kind of a symptom of that, really. You know, this sense that there are these shady people in Silicon Valley doing stuff that we don't understand is probably a palpable concern for many people. I also think in this age, it's really hard to know exactly where tech is being used and what it's being used for. This is one of the biggest challenges. I think it's up to comms people not only to explain what it is, but to put people's minds at rest that it's not something to be concerned of, that this isn't deep state or capitalist forces wanting to take over the world. Maybe there's a bit of that sometimes, but do you know what I mean? It feels like these are the biggest sort of challenges, but as with so much in this industry, challenges mean opportunities. So I think that's where the industry needs to focus on with, with this sort of thing. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Staying with the barometer, there is usually some controversy around it, though, and that's been the case this year, too. Um, Evie, you've been looking into this. What are the criticisms this time? So the criticisms have largely come from the PR and advertising campaign group Clean Creatives, which has been doing some work to coincide with the Trust Barometer. They actually created their own Trust Barometer fact sheet to expose what they call Edelman's trust washing. They say that any work that Edelman does with fossil fuel clients significantly undermines the credibility of the Trust Barometer. Um, Clean Creatives acknowledges that Edelman's research does provide some good advice on issues like climate change. 
but says that the PR firm's actual client work doesn't align with this. So to demonstrate that, Clean Creatives has highlighted the fact that Edelman worked with Charles Koch in 2022. So that's a billionaire who has funded US think tanks which oppose climate action and help to spread climate disinformation. Edelman admitted that it had worked with the Charles Koch Foundation in the past when we contacted them, but told us that it disagrees with the narrative of its critics. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It feels like Edelman and some of the other big holding companies particularly, and and the big PR agencies as well as advertising agencies, of course, have very much a comms challenge themselves. And this is something we've seen for several years and groups like Clean Creatives are um, are not giving up on this and are keen to get their voice heard. So yeah, I think that's the world we live in and the likes of Edelman will be very sort of conscious of their own comms challenge around around these things. Yeah, it's hard to draw many conclusions when we don't know exactly what kind of briefs Edelman worked on with the foundation, but I think unless they're going to be open, then they're going to keep facing these kind of accusations. Okay, same with you, Evie. Um, you wrote an interesting story last week related to client agency pitches, which is always a hot topic of debate. This one got quite a lot of attention. What was it about? So it's spurred from a LinkedIn post by Shannon Tucker, who is the vice president of a US-based PR agency called Next PR, and it absolutely blew up with likes and comments last week. In the post, she told a story about when her agency had been participating in an RFP process, and the prospective client told her that one of the competing agencies was included as a courtesy. Presumably the business was letting the incumbent agency repitch, but didn't really have any intentions of rehiring that agency. In her post, Tucker made the point that organisations might think they're doing agencies a favour by taking this approach, but actually the agency just ends up wasting their time and resources by focusing on what is essentially a losing battle if they're never really going to win this new business. The post sparked a lot of discussion. There were loads of comments on it, um, but I wondered what you guys thought. I completely agree with Tucker. Never let an agency waste time and resources if they don't have a shot. I think agencies can better value their time and be more selective about which pitches to join. Personally, I find it quite offensive and condescending to invite an agency to pitch when they don't stand a chance. It's kind of like playing a video game but not having the controllers like plugged in, you're kind of just like stuck <laughs> at start. Has this happened to you, by the way? It sounds like you've got first first-hand experience. If you have older siblings yeah. and they don't want to hang out with you, they just take out the controller, so you're wow. kind of there. But, I feel this is something we should pick up later. I'm quite sad at this. <laughs> I think with all the hard work that goes into the pitching process and all the extra time spent looking, researching, developing new concepts... I think it's so unfair to just invite someone as a courtesy because you don't know the amount of work they've done in order to develop that strategy. Mm. Yeah, I agree. I think it's sort of background to this as well. We sort of hear anecdotally that people are pitching more, that there was a time, particularly in the sort of second half of last year, that there was a time when, you know, agencies would only look for the sort of prime things to pitch for um, and would sort of really kind of avoid those that are sort of maybe on the margins or they're not so interested in. But actually, some agency bosses have told me that that they they switched that last year and they were just going for more and going for more because obviously everyone needs to meet meet their targets and get that extra bit of business in. So with that in mind, I think stuff like this is pretty horrible, really. I totally agree with you. Mm, I think people are getting a bit fed up of the whole pitching process. I mean, I've heard tales of clients putting an account out to pitch uh, only to not go with an agency and then perhaps use the ideas that were pitched to them, kind of take credit for them. That kind of thing seems to happen 
But then again, there are some kind of counter arguments in the comments of Tucker's post, which I found interesting. Leah Katz, who works in the US for Fleischmann Hillard, kind of made the point that it's down to the incumbent agency a lot of the time to assess how likely they think they are to win the business again and then withdraw from the pitch process if necessary. It's not really the client's place to tell them if they should give it another go or not. I guess so. It just it feels like, you know, leading someone up the garden path, really. Mm. Let's face it, I think everyone agrees that changes need to happen with the pitch process, but that's that's a whole podcast in itself, isn't it? Yeah. And doubtless one we'll do later this year. <laughs> but if you've got strong views on the pitch process, let us know. And um, yeah, we will um, keep a close eye on it. So finally, Christmas. It already seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? But Festive trading results are out now from some of the big UK supermarkets. We debated the Christmas campaigns late last year uh, many times, but now we have the hard numbers. Evie, who won Christmas? There were a few winners, actually. A number of supermarkets had quite a good Christmas. Sainsbury's was one of them. It increased its sales by more than 9% over the festive period. Um, And Sainsbury's launched a campaign which was kind of a bit more back to basics. It starred real staff and it focused on the value of the products that Sainsbury's has to offer uh, with a brief cameo from Rick Astley for entertainment value. The campaign didn't generate a huge amount of buzz on social media from stats that we got early on in the race, but it seemed to succeed in bringing shoppers to the store, which is the main thing. I found it quite interesting that on the other hand, Asda had a slightly similar idea focused on its stores and its product, but it executed it with the gimmick of a big Michael Bublé cameo as the main selling point. Um, if you don't remember, he appeared as the chief quality officer at Asda. Um, that idea seemed to succeed in terms of gaining headlines initially, but I think Asda took too long to launch the full campaign film and people sort of lost interest a bit. And that was reflected in the fact that Asda lost 0.4 percentage points of its previous market share grew only 3.4% in sales. Generally, most supermarkets and retailers did go for that light-hearted, humorous campaign approach, and it did seem to work, even for those that received initial criticism for doing so, like M&S with its famous breaking traditions, clothing and home campaign. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Obviously, there was the famous controversy around the picture that M&S promoted from the clothing and home campaign that some people said looked like there's sort of party hats next to a fire. Some people said they resembled the Palestinian flag. Mm. Big story last year. And maybe this, and MS obviously ap- apologised for this and kind of reacted pretty quickly. And some people said that wasn't necessarily the right thing to do at the time, but maybe this suggests MS may have been vindicated over its approach. Yeah, MS did have increase in sales. They're up by 8.1%, and that included a 9.9% like for like sales increase on food. So Overall, they had a a good festive period regardless. The M&S food campaign was one that I particularly liked. It included the return of 2022's Christmas Fairy, voiced by Dawn French. And then it also had some new characters voiced by actors and Wrexham FC co-chairman Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhinney. I thought this was a smart campaign because it had a narrative arc and it was delivered across a series of films launched from sort of November time and concluding on New Year's Eve. So it seemed to maintain consumer interest and keep the brand front of mind beyond that initial campaign launch period where we saw so many kind of come out in quick succession. Yeah, so the importance of timing shouldn't be underestimated. And it's interesting that purpose wasn't, as we've discussed before, wasn't a massive thing for the Christmas campaigns generally this year, or certainly not purpose as we've we've sort of known it in in recent years around sort of supporting progressive and, and good causes. But it doesn't look as though that's sort of hampered anyone, I would say. I mean, as you say, the sort of lighthearted, humorous stuff seems to be kind of the, the name of the game. And 
is generally sort of done pretty well for quite a few groups. So there'll be some lessons there. What do you think about Iceland and their decision to not launch a Christmas campaign? I think it was a good move for the brand of Iceland generally. And we had Richard Walker, the Iceland boss, as our communicator of the year last year. And I think this was like bang on brand, if you like, with them. So I think it was good for maintaining that reputation. And it got column inches and was probably successful from that point of view. I don't know if it particularly lifted sales, year-on-year sales at Iceland. I don't think it did. But, you know, Iceland's a private company, so it doesn't necessarily have to report in the same way, or it doesn't have to report in the same way that a lot of others do. So it's sort of family-owned business, and they can kind of take a longer-term perspective. So it kind of fits in with that strategy in mind. Okay, that's all the time we have for this episode. Noise in Brief goes live every two weeks. We look out for our longer interview-based podcast, Beyond the Noise, which comes out next week. Thank you to Eliza and Evie for your insights. Do check out prweek.com forward slash UK for all the latest news and all our great events too that are coming up in 2024. I'm going to plug two fantastic award schemes now, 30 Under 30, which is our annual search for the young stars of UK PR, and the PR Week Global Awards, which recognises the best campaigns, agencies, in-house teams and individuals in comms from across the globe. So enter both now. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.